You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We will be reading verses 1 through 14. Uh, At the end of it, I will say... Uh, This is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond with thanks be to God. This is a long passage, so stand if you are able, um, starting in verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible, it should be up on the screen. Now, even the first covenants had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenants covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenants. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seats. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which to this arranged, uh, sorry, which is the symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscious conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Redemption Hill kids, uh, ages two to four, as well as grades one to three, you are dismissed. All right, you may be seated and give you a minute to gather yourself. I know some of you are going off to Redemption Kids. If it serves you,
Well, good morning to you all. My, uh, can I just express my temptation this morning? It is to spend the next 40 to 45 minutes to complain about the Iowa Hawkeye football game. <laughs> and if you're an Iowa fan, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I won't do that. I'll, le- I'll let it lie and get on with more important matters here. I hope many of you were able to uh, read Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 this last week. Uh, the reason why I encouraged you last Sunday to read those chapters is that it really just gets, it talks so much about God's covenant relationship with his people. And as I, and as I mentioned last week, I think this idea of God making a covenant is sometimes uh, undervalued and overlooked. And actually, it's actually very, very important. I want you to see the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. Uh, as I said, these, these chapters are more like a spider web and less like a domino. You push down one domino and it kind of logically falls in order. That's like a Pauline epistle, right? You read Romans and it's just like this long legal, logical letter, right? Um, Hebrews is just structured very differently. Um, my hope is that when you see the entire web, it kind of makes sense, makes more sense at least. And so this morning, I hope to connect kind of some more dots for you. While preparing for, for this sermon and these particular verses, I had the passing thought that I wish I grew up a good Jew. Let me explain myself. Here's why I had that thought. A, a problem um, with many churches within Protestant Christianity is that we're too, I don't know what the right word was here, but I'm going with the word platonic. What I mean is that we tend to think and believe in the abstract and we miss how objects are, are sometimes symbols trying to convey a deeper meaning. Yes, we are Christians who love the Word of God, which contains thousands of words about God and His creation. But all these words communicate tangible truths. Now here's why I wish I, uh, at least for this moment, at least for this sermon, wish I grew up a good Jew. Today, I'm going to be talking in detail about the tabernacle. That's, just, that's exactly what's in focus in Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 10 in particular. I'm going to talk about the tabernacle. And they're packed with objects that symbolize deeper truths. A good Jew can read Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 10, and tell you the purpose and meaning of everything in the tabernacle. Why is that important to us? Many of the objects that symbolize a profound truth about God are pointing us to Christ. I want to show you how and why this morning. One final note before I pray. Um, I will do something that's fairly unorthodox for me. I'm going to show you a few pictures. I was reminded earlier um, while we are setting up that I've done this one other time in the history of this church. I'm going to do it again this, this morning. I'm a visual learner, just so you know. And if you're a visual learner as well, hopefully you'll be helped by a few images that I'll, that I'll show you in today's message. So let me pray, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. 
Help me to help my friends make sense of what you have spoken through your word. Help me to be clear and convey what is true. Help me to convey what is good. Lord, help me to convey what is beautiful in your word. Lord, I trust that in the power of the Spirit, you're at work in this church. And pray that you give us eyes to see. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout church history, uh, the concepts of goodness, truth, and beauty have helped Christians understand the nature of God and his creation. Goodness, truth, and beauty. The Catholics do a good job of of really uh, understanding these particular co- concepts and helping, helping to articulate uh, their faith, right? And this, these are actually components of classical education, if you're familiar with that. On the whole, I think they're really helpful concepts to understand the world and what you read in the Bible. Before using these categories to help you read Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14, let's define our terms here. What does goodness mean? What does truth and beauty mean? Now, these terms can be understood individually, but they're, they're very connected, actually. Um, I found some definitions from a college. It's called Hillsdale College. I think it's in Pennsylvania. And I think they point us into the right direction. are going to help us um, really understand Hebrews 9. Here's goodness. The good of anything is found in its ability to accomplish what is created for, to realize its purpose. Purpose is really important. Goodness helps us to understand purpose, purpose for existence as intended by its maker. Only in this realization can something truly be called good. I find that to be a a helpful definition. I know there's different ways to articulate this, but I find this one in particular to be helpful. So goodness is connected directly to purpose. For example, the moment I uh, married Sharice, my wife, I assumed something good. Before God, I was endowed with a new purpose in my life. That purpose is to be a godly husband to my wife. Right? You see how purpose is connected to something good. Uh, We can think about this from a spiritual perspective. We could say that your purpose in life as a Christian is to glorify God. That is a good purpose. When you live to glorify God, you can comprehend goodness because it's connected directly to purpose. So that's goodness. Now, what's with the next term, right? Truth. The good is possible in light of the truth. Not truth as it is often defined today by personal preference or popular consensus. And that is truly how people find truth these days, right? It is preference or consensus, right? But truth, as it is, is independent from opinions and emotions. In particular, truth is objective. It is straight up objective, and it has been revealed. Even more specifically, truth is located in the Word of God. Here's how you can test truth this morning. When we begin to look at the details of the tabernacle, you can ask, what does this mean and where do I find answers? Right? You can ask those questions as you look at God's word. One could argue that a reason why you exist is to pursue the truth. 
Here's one final term, right? Beauty, goodness, truth, beauty. And where goodness and truth exist, there you will find beauty. We were created for a purpose, right? That's, that's the goodness. That purpose is not left to chance or whim, but was determined by our maker and written in our nature. And purpose, our purpose is to seek truth in order to discover and to act on what is good and beautiful in this life. Let me break down that particular definition. Again, I think this is going to help inform what we read. Goodness plus truth equals, if you like math, this is good for you, equals beauty. Goodness plus truth equals beauty. Not everyone believes that beauty is objective. Most people believe that beauty is relative. What you think is beautiful might be different than what I think is beautiful. I tend to disagree, actually. I understand how beauty can be thought about from a subjective perspective. For example, my favorite color, my kids know this, my favorite color is cubby blue, Chicago Cubs baseball, whatever blue they have going on. Right? But your favorite color might be red. But that is not what I'm talking about this morning. There is something deeper when it comes to comprehending beauty. People often say, like, war is ugly. This statement assumes that war is not beautiful. We make statements like this all of the time. This morning, I am going to show you what is objectively beautiful. I will show you what is beautiful, even when people do not agree in this objective beauty. So that's how I'm framing Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14, with these three terms. Goodness, truth, and beauty. I mentioned last week that we're beginning to see the particulars of the new covenant. Under the new covenant, Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial and ceremonial aspects of the law. This theme continues, but as they say in Narnia, we are going further up and further in as we look at the details of what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful in our text. The way we're going to see goodness, truth, and beauty is by comparing and contrasting the Old Testament tabernacle with Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's doing this game of comparing and contrasting. I want us to look at the tabernacle, not because I actually want to become a good Jew. That's not why we're looking at the tabernacle. But because I want to know more about Christ. So what is good about the tabernacle? What was it intended for? While Israel wandered through the wilderness before the temple was established in Jerusalem, God dwelled with his people in and through the tabernacle. Functionally, the tabernacle was this portable temple. That's what it functionally was. And even when you get to the temple under King Solomon, the temple takes on the same shape as the tabernacle. The tabernacle was constructed in such a way that it was distinguished and central to wherever, wherever the Israeli camp was located. It would be the means by which the people of God could worship. It was about one-fourth of a football field. And listen to this. It took 8,000, this is what they estimate, 8,000 people to construct the tabernacle, this movable temple, which is insane, right? Think about getting 8,000 people and be like, we're going to do a building project. 
Like, I'm starting to think about how do you even organize that, right? Hebrews 9 Uh, Verse 1 says that the tabernacle was an earthly place of holiness, meaning it was holy because God dwelled in the most holy place inside the tabernacle. From the same Greek word that gets translated as holy, we have this word sanctify, right? Sanctify is the root of our English word sanctuary, right? We We say that churches meet in a sanctuary. Now, I'm not trying to play like Jedi mind tricks with you with all this etymology, but it can be helpful to see the connections. The tabernacle is holy. The tabernacle is supposed to be sanctified. Now, I've said this before, I'm not a huge fan of graphics in the middle of a sermon because they often distract from the Word of God. But I'm going to make an exception this morning because it can help us see what God's Word explains with words. So take a look at this picture of the tabernacle. Some of what you see behind me actually comes up in our text, specifically in Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 10. And we've got a little, uh, you can see that numbers over there and how it corresponds with the graphic over there. You can see how the American football field and the size of the tabernacle, which seems pretty big to me. The creation, you can keep that up for a little bit to my next slide. Uh, The creation and use of the tabernacle makes sense when you understand its purpose. While there are theological differences, churches are created in our day because they are a visible reminder and a central location for worship. The means of worship in the tabernacle included various ceremonial rituals connected with the objects inside the tabernacle. Behind the first curtain, right? You got got the, the outer court, and you got the holy place when you get into the tent area. Then you have the most holy place. And by the way, when you're reading Hebrews, that word tent means tabernacle here. So behind that first curtain, in in the holy place, there was a lampstand, the table, the bread of presence. That's Hebrews 9.2. Behind the second curtain, and in the most holy place, there was a golden, golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now go ahead and show that other graphic of the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you. That's the Ark of the Covenant. That's also a big deal. The Ark of the Covenant is where manna, Aaron's staff and the tablets of the Ten Commandments resided. It's Hebrews 9, verses 3 to 4. Finally, in the most holy place was the cherubim and the mercy seat, Hebrews 9, 5. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that he is not going to elaborate on what all these things mean, which I kind of laughed at, because that's what I'm going to do for you this morning. (laughs) The author of Hebrews is not going to make it clear. I want to make it clear for you, because I actually think it shows us the superiority of Christ. Again, goodness is connected with purpose and the purpose of the tabernacle and everything located in the tabernacle was to worship God. That is the purpose. Now, how do we see truth in the tabernacle and more specifically in our text this morning? Independent of your opinions and emotions, the truth is that the people of God have sinned against God. They have rebelled against God and need a means to stave off God's wrath. Hence, the need to fulfill the sacrificial aspects of the law. Read with me Hebrews 9, verses 6 and 7. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. That's the most holy place. And he but once a year. Just once a year. And not without without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Please note 
what the priests take with him as he enters the most holy place once a year. Blood. Blood is a big deal in the Bible. We, we uh, had what we confessed with coffee yesterday morning. We had a great conversation on the whole. We were talking about the creation of man, and I can't remember who made the comment, but someone made the comment how you know, we were made from the dust and how dust is a theme that resonates throughout all of Scripture. And that brought my mind to today's text, which is the same, same truth as with blood. When you pay attention, this, this idea of blood is a theme throughout all of Scripture. It's just another one of those threads that you constantly are, are hearing about. It's a big deal because blood represents life. To have blood means to maintain life, and to take away blood is to forego life. The way to preserve the life of the people of God was to offer a sacrifice by taking blood from an animal. Let me take you to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 17. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn with them, right? Who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So you pour out the blood of the animal and then you're covering it with the earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature or the life of every creature is its blood. For the life of every creature is its blood. Aside from the fact that Jews could not eat medium rare steak, <laughs> right? It's kind of a bummer. That's how I like my steak you do see the underlying reason for these dietary restrictions. I have friends who are not Christians, and they always hem and haw about the Old Testament, in particular the dietary restrictions. That's because you don't understand what's really being spoken here about the importance of life that is directly connected to blood. You do not digest the blood of something that was alive. Blood equals life. Um, I want to make a, a parenthetical statement, and then I will get back on topic. Historically speaking, the Jewish and Christian traditions have a robust understanding of life. Uh, these two faith traditions have a deep respect for all of life. All of life. I respect the life of an unborn baby and my dog, Winston. I do. I respect both differently, of course, but I respect both nonetheless. I respect both because both have blood. From a young age, Sharice and I have taught our kids to respect the life of the chickens that we've had, right? Um, the ducks that we've had, the geese that we've had, the meat rabbits that we have that we were going to butcher and eat, right? We know what their purpose is for, but we respect them nonetheless because they have blood. You don't randomly kick a hen when you're in the coop, but you respect it. Therefore, when an animal was sacrificed in the tabernacle or later the temple, it was done with, a, with respect and a deep sense that something weighty was, was happening. Something weighty is going to take place. Think of it kind of the opposite way. How great is the sacrifice if you did not respect that life? Right? If you didn't respect that animal, 
Who cares? We're just making a sacrifice, right? But when you, when you, when you actually respect it, that sacrifice is more weighty. The connection between blood and sacrifice is further explained in Leviticus 17. And I quote, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by this life. The most significant sacrifice made in the tabernacle was on the Day of Atonement which was alluded to in Hebrews 9. It was celebrated once a year, once a year. The Jewish Day of Atonement is equivalent to a Christian's Good Friday, right? We celebrate Good Friday. It's it's kind of our equivalent. It's a big deal. As the name suggests, the Jewish Day of Atonement celebrates God forgiving the sins of his covenant people. I'll explain why this is beautiful and necessary in a moment. But the truth is that God chose a people for himself. Time after time, God extended mercy. He extended grace. He extended love to his people. However, the people of God constantly rejected their covenant God. Like, allow this truth to sink deep in your hearts. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we sing that every now and then, prone to leave the God I love. That is true of me as much as it is with Israel. We are prone to being drawn to shiny objects of this world and not to the one true God. I mean, we're prone to complain about how Iowa was jobbed by a riffing call, right? I know that about myself or other things in life. And it distracts us from the one true God. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I'm constantly redirecting my heart toward God. Many of the idols of our day are sinister and aim to distract you and me from focusing and worshiping and walking with God. Under the old covenant, constant stopgaps were needed to atone for the sins of God's people. Like, did you do that one thing again that you know that you should not do? Well, you better grab the priest and you head to the tabernacle. Here's the bottom line. Here is the truth. Sin is a problem and needs to be dealt with. That's the truth as we think about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is good because it is a place of worship. And the truth is that the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, a sacrifice is made to atone for sins. Goodness and truth. Now what about beauty? How do we see beauty in this passage? Here's where purpose intersects with truth to show us beauty. You remember all those things in the tabernacle? Well, they were all connected to a deeper meaning that cultivated a deep sense of worship. Let's start with the lampstand. If I'm leveling with you, like as we've journeyed throughout the book of Hebrews, this has been one of my favorite sermons to prepare for because there's so much I didn't know. And I'm I'm like reading it and I'm like, Christ seems so much bigger now. That's a little bit while we're slowing down to look at these objects. Lampstand, right? Hebrews 9.2. The light of the lampstand. Uh, Jews call it the, their menorah, right? It is in the holy place. It existed and it was to never go out. 
It represents the light of God, and it's always shining, even in the darkness. The bread of presence, also called the showbread, symbolizes God being the one to nourish and provide for Israel. As you pass through that second curtain, that's the holy place. As you pass through that second curtain into the most holy place or the holy of holies, there's a golden altar of incense that represents the prayers of God's people constantly being lifted up to God. The golden urn holding the manna, which is part of the Ark of the Covenant, is a memorial. This memorial exists to remind the people of God that God provided for them when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. God was there. Aaron's staff was also in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a sign against those people and nations who had become hostile to God's people. You remember that? Aaron's staff, Pharaoh, Exodus, right? All the plagues that came down. And of course, the two tablets were also in the Ark of the Covenant, which are the Ten Commandments. They are the spoken word of God. They are, they are the law unto God's people. The author of Hebrews mentions one more item in the most holy place. It is the mercy seat on the annual day of atonement. The high priests entered the most holy place to offer atonement. Several animals were sacrificed and blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, I want to linger on this last point for a moment because it is where we see beauty through blood. I actually was tempted to call the title of the sermon that, Beauty Through Blood. On the Day of Atonement, several animals were sacrificed. A bull was sacrificed on behalf of the priesthood, Levitical priesthood. Right? Then two goats were brought into the tent. The first was slaughtered in the outer court, near that outer court before you get to the holy place. The blood of that goat was then taken into the most holy place before the mercy seat. This goat was meant to deal with the sins of the entire nation of Israel. Leviticus 16, verses 6 to 10. The blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat and resulted in this theological word that we use, propitiation, which means the satisfaction of God's wrath on a substitute, the goat, in place of his people. But what about the second goat? What's up with that one, right? Got the first goat, it was slaughtered, sacrificed. What about the second goat? The second goat, which is called the scapegoat, and after lay, hands were laid on it, was sent to Uzazul in the wilderness and freed, probably meaning it was taken to a desolate mountain and killed. Uh, there's debate about what is Uzazul. Uh, Uzazul, um, but I'll table that for another day. With the second goat, expiation was accomplished. The sins of the people were taken away from Israel and away from their holy camp. One goat appeased the wrath of God, and the second goat took away the sins of God's covenant people. Now you can hear the New Testament language all of a sudden in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> This is, this is setting up the cross. I mean, we should hit the pause button for a moment. We all know the limitations of the Old Covenant. We all know the limitations of the sacrifices made under the Old Covenant. But that does not mean what we read in Leviticus and what Hebrews is picking up is not beautiful. Not only... 
were the clear and obvious sins forgiven, but the unintentional sins were forgiven. You can probably think of these, when Hebrews says unintentional sins, we can think about sins of ignorance. In the place where God is to be worshipped, goodness, God executed justice so his covenant people could be forgiven. Truth and goodness plus truth is beautiful. Now let's compare the tabernacle with the cross. If goodness is connected to purpose, then we need to ask the question, what is the purpose of the Son of God? There are several ways in which we can answer this question, but I want to connect the purpose of the Son of God with the tabernacle. I said the purpose of the tabernacle or the tent was to have a realized place of worship. Well, the same is true for our heavenly tabernacle. The author of Hebrews makes that direct connection. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with with hands, that is, not of this creation. It is through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, that a person can now have access to God. The purpose of Christ is to give you this access. As a matter of fact, the curtain, right? That curtain in the tabernacle between the holy place and the most holy place, we read in Matthew and Mark, it was torn in two to give you access to God. A more perfect tent now exists. And the purpose of the heavenly tabernacle is worship. It is direct access to worship the triune God through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to keep in mind, what we need to keep in mind is that the earthly tabernacle, the one we just were talking about, and that picture that I showed, showed you, is a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. So after seeing the goodness of the earthly tabernacle, how much more remarkable is the heavenly tabernacle? How do we see truth from Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14? The reason why we can worship God unencumbered, once again, is through blood. Take a look at verse 12. He'd entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Listen, um, I know for, for many of you who are following the Lord, you're just, in your heart, you're saying yes and amen, and I get that, and that's good, but these are precious truths that we need to remind ourselves every single day that you have a breath. If you do not know the Lord, and I pray that God would use this text to draw you to him, to see the power of the blood of Christ. There's no longer a need for an earthly high priest to sacrifice a bull, goat, and calves on the Day of Atonement. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the spilling of his blood has secured, what we read, an eternal redemption. The death of our Savior has secured an eternal redemption because, and this is the theme of the entire book of Hebrews, the sacrifice of the Son of God is superior. It is greater. 
That is the point of verse 13. The sacrifice of Christ is more tremendous because he is perfect. The sacrifice is greater because in the power of the Holy Spirit, a person is now cleansed from the inside out. Under the new covenant, God is no longer concerned with you taking that ceremonial bath before walking into the holy place, most holy place, and doing that sacrifice. And praise God, we don't got to do that, right? That's good news. Under the new covenant, the heart is cleansed because of Christ. You see in verses 9 and in verse 14, the word conscience pops up in verse 9 and then verse 14. The author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting. Under the Old Covenant, verse 9, a person's conscience constantly battled with sin. Every single day, sin was nipping at the heel of the human conscience. Hence, ongoing sacrifices, not only on the Day of Atonement, but ongoing sacrifices needed to be offered up to God. But under the New Covenant, verse 14, the conscience has been washed clean because of a superior and final sacrifice. The result of a clean conscience is Romans 8.1. Commit it to memory, please. There is therefore now, as you sit, as I stand, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen indeed. No condemnation right now. Again, without emotion or passion, this is the objective truth. Christ died to save wretched sinners and cleanse them, cleanse their conscience through his atoning sacrifice. If you are a child of God, there is no condemnation under the new covenant. That is a truth. That is an objective truth without passion or emotion that we can cling to. I know I get emotional. I get that. You all see that. But push that aside. That is a truth, an objective truth we must cling to. What about beauty? How does Jesus Christ look beautiful? I told you I would take you back to some of the items in the tabernacle. I think this was like kind of the fun part for me personally. We can actually see the beauty of Christ by looking at some of those objects. I said the light of the lampstand represents the light of God. It's always shining, especially in the darkness. Well, that lampstand takes on a deeper meaning when we read John 8, 12, that Jesus is the light of the world and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness. Like you can put the, put the menorah away. I don't think many of you have them in your house. Maybe none of you. You don't need it. Put it away. Jesus is the light of the world. Like, you can make that direct connection. That helps us understand why Jesus says that in the first place. Also in the holy place was the bread of presence, which was symbolic of God being the one to nourish and provide for Israel. But Jesus now tells us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. John 6, verse 35. Put the showbread away. Don't need it. I mean, if you like it and you like to consume it, fine. But that meaning is now directly connected to Christ. You'll remember on the other side of that curtain, in the most holy place, 
is a golden altar of incense that represents the prayers of God's people constantly being lifted up to God. Well, it is likely the incense was lit in the holy place and then was taken into the most holy place, filling the most holy place with a sweet aroma. We read in 2 Corinthians, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then we read again in Ephesians 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, a sweet aroma. That's Ephesians 5, 2. Christian, as you walk in love, this is part of what's being communicated, as you walk in love, as you walk in Christ, you are that sweet aroma now to God. If you like burning incense, fine. But that meaning is now directly connected to Christ. One more connection, which is the most obvious, is the mercy seat in the most holy place. Read with me Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word again, propitiation, directly connected back to Leviticus, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, God needs to be just, that's part of his character, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh. just kind of want to break out in praise after reading that, that passage, man. It is through the blood of Christ that a person is justified before God. And now we have gone from a mercy seat to Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the work between those two seats, we have seen God's amazing work of redemption. Again, this is straight gospel heat. And it's, it's good, it is true, and it's beautiful. From the tabernacle to the cross. My friends, listen, there's nothing more beautiful than this. I want to end with a few provocative thoughts that I hope will lead us into the right direction. Consider the antonyms of this trio, goodness, truth, and beauty. The antonyms are, perhaps, you know, bad and evil is the opposite of goodness. Lies is the opposite of truth. Ugliness is the opposite of beauty. The opposite of good is bad because sin corrupts. We live in a world where bad things occur. I mean, most of you probably know there's a war in Ukraine and in Israel as well. Regardless of what you think about politics and the history of these conflicts, war is never good. It might be necessary, but it's not good. We are hearing about women being raped and children being killed. Monsters who are bent on doing evil commit these kind of atrocities. As Christians, we look to Christ we must remind ourselves we must always pursue what is good. Because what is good is directly connected to our Savior and Lord. The opposite of truth is lies. 
In John 8, we read that the devil is the author of lies and the devil loves to sow lies. Why? So that there might be division. There's a lot of division in our country, right? People are believing in lies as Christians. We must always, always, always be about pursuing the truth. Always. Period. Hard stop. What is true? And truth is always connected to God. The opposite of beauty is ugly. At the top of the sermon, I said that beauty is not necessarily relative. Beauty is when we see the confluence, like two rivers coming together, the confluence of goodness and truth. The same math works for ugliness that we see in this world. Bad or evil plus lies is just ugly. Our culture is not short, not in short supply of the ugly. I point all this out not to discourage you, but actually to do the opposite, to magnify the goodness and truth and beauty in Christ and his gospel. I mean, let's see the distinction. Let's make it really clear. Let me tell you why you should never despair and always have hope because of what we see in today's text. God has gone from the tabernacle to the cross. He has gone from the tabernacle to the cross and then walked out of the tomb. But there's even more. God has gone from the tabernacle to the cross, walking out of the tomb, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The Son of God epitomizes goodness, truth, and beauty. And we have the privilege to worship the Son now and for all eternity. We don't need to go to a tabernacle. We just show up right here and we praise God for what he has done through Christ, through his atoning work. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of Christ now dwells in you and the Spirit beckons you. It calls you to continue to pursue goodness, truth, and beauty as you worship your Savior, Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship our great God. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.